Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good morning. Nice. That's pretty, that's pretty decent. So, um, I don't know about you guys, but it was Thursday evening, and we were driving back as a family, and we were on the west side, kind of in Middleton area, with uh, a family that invited us over for Thanksgiving. I'm driving back, and I'm on the Beltline, and... I get to about the Gammon Road exit, and I look to the left, and the mall is completely packed, and I look to the right, and Walmart is completely packed, and all of a sudden, you know, you have this sense of like, I am way behind in preparations already, like everybody's beating me to the punch, and you know, this is a time of year in which, you know, it's almost like whiplash after Thanksgiving, there's this sense of we need to start preparing for this day coming uh, later in December, and um, can be kind of overwhelming, right? There's a lot of great things happening, a lot of great events um, to see in the preparation, and, and yet, when you go back and you think about um, the church historically, if you go back to the fourth century, one of the things the church did was they started to do something in which they began a season of preparation leading up to Christmas Day. It was called Advent, and Advent literally means coming, and it was a time in which the church said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time, we're going to dial in, look at Jesus and his promises in this first coming, and then we're going to also prepare ourselves for his second coming. And that's actually the season we find ourselves in this morning. It's, it's this, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and um, I think as we think about Redeemer City and why we exist, um, we would hope for you and your family that this would be a season of not only great preparation, like, yeah, you better get to the mall and get those good deals and all that stuff, and you better figure out how to spend time with family and friends and the like, but this would be a season in which perhaps for some of you this would deepen, maybe renew a relationship with God. Uh, perhaps for others of you who are in this room and you are curious or perhaps skeptical of anything to do with this season, anything to do with religion as a whole, perhaps this might be a season in which you might just say, let me just give it another shot, that I might perhaps figure out what this season is all about. And so as we kind of enter in, um, we're going to do a series and, and if, if, if I could like build a stage here and 
I'm horrible with wood and all that stuff and all the different decorations, but if I could put up one word, it would be this. It would be longing. That um, there's a sense in each one of us, no matter our religious backdrop, that all of us long for things. And we're going to look at three longings that we would just say, no matter who you are, if you were honest with yourself, you long for these things. So we're going to look at three things over the next three weeks the longing for peace, a longing for justice, and a longing for glory. And we want you to understand how your deepest longings actually all converge on what this season is all about. And so this morning we're going to look at this longing for peace. And um, this longing for peace. So let me, as we kind of dial in here for a moment, let me just pray, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll just step right in. So, God, we, um, we come to you this morning, and we just pray as we kind of enter into this text and this time of preparing, um, that you might speak to each one of us, that we would not walk out of here um, not having heard about what this is all about. And would you, by the work that only you can do, would you somehow connect our longings to the hope of what Christmas is about. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. So John Lennon in 1969, his, uh, his first kind of solo hit was, the, um, was a Give Peace a Chance. I don't know if you guys remember that song, but um, here's a couple lines from it. Everybody's talking about bagism, shagism, dragism, madism, ragism, tagism, thisism. All we're saying is give peace a chance. Everybody's talking about ministers and sinisters and banisters and canisters and bishops and bishops and rabbis and Popeyes and bye-bye-byes. All we're saying is give peace a chance. And, you know, here's the deal. What Lenin was doing at that point was he was really tapping into this longing that, that all of us feel, right? Like that we could actually wake up one day, get on our Twitter feed, and not see flowers surrounding um, cafes and concert halls where carnage was just laid out, right? We, we, long for, we long for moments in which, you know, the tables that will sit around this season and will sit around with faces and names that we maybe see one or two times a year in which there's honestly, if we were just honest, there's just discord. It's, just, it's not all good. It's not all pretty. There's bitterness. There's angst. If we were honest, we, we would say even in those settings, no matter what we think, we would long for actually a, a table in which we could sit around. There would just be peace. And what's interesting about this time of year, you know, you, you see this word peace, and it's on billboards, and it's on cups, and it's going to be on cards, and it's almost like it's like just right up in your grill, you know? And it's, it's almost like you can understand that this notion of peace is just so elusive. You know, I think for a lot of us, um, we get a little bit cynical this time of year. You know, it's kind of like the, the beauty pageant contestant that is asked the question, what do you want for this world? And they say peace, and you know, we all just kind of smirk and laugh and say, yeah, you're, that, that's a nice pipe dream, right? But, but let me just tell you something. This longing for peace, like this, this isn't new. Uh, this has been around 
thousands of years. And in fact, um, the ancient prophet and poet Isaiah, in his day, over two and a half millennia ago, dreamed of a time when this world would actually have peace. He actually dropped lyrics in that day that pointed toward a future in which peace would reign. And so we're going to look at this text this morning in Isaiah, and we're going to see how our longing for peace actually connects very clearly to God's promise of peace. I don't know if you guys remember um, this last October um, on the 21st, kind of it, it wasn't, it was, just, it was just a normal day, but it actually wasn't a normal day because October 21st, 2015 was the date set on the DeLorean back in Back to the Future. Do you all remember that day? So if you remember that, I, I grew up, I, I mean, I was eight when that movie, I think, came out, you know, so do the math. Yeah, I'm old. I get it. But here's the deal. So when I watched that movie, like, I was seeing a prediction of the future, right? And what's crazy is 30 years later, like, I can tell you what was legit and what wasn't, right? We don't have flying cars, right? The Cubs got really close, really close. Um, but what's happening in Isaiah 2, it's, it's a snapshot of the future. It, and it's not a prediction like the creators of, you know, Back to the Future. It's a promise. And, it, and it's a snapshot of what God's going to bring about. So just for a moment, let's look through here and let's look at what this promise looks like. What, what is God going to do? It begins, it says, Here's Isaiah, the, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass, this is verse 2, in the latter days. Now, that term, latter days, it is a technical term. The, the Jews of, the, of, of that day, they kind of had a two-stage view of history. It was the day they lived in, which was in which there was much brokenness and fallenness, in which they were a part of it, but also that there was a day coming in which their God would bring about this great age of blessing. And latter days was that. This is what that day is going to look like. And so the snapshot begins, if you just picture with me, it's just a, it begins with the image of a mountain. It says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, this mountain is a very particular mountain. It was the mountain where the temple was. And on this mount, it's actually, it's actually pretty, like it's 2,500 feet high. Like That's about all it is in terms of height. But this was the place where, historically speaking, God told his people, hey, build a temple and at the very center of this complex was the Holy of Holies. This was the place where heaven and earth met. This was the, the place where God's feet touched the earth. And what's happening here is there's this imagery that's happening. It's saying that this mountain is going to be lifted up above all the other mountains. And that's saying that this God is going to be exalted above all other gods. 
this, this mountain that's kind of indistinguishable, if you were in Jerusalem today, you would see it's, it kind of just fits in with the rest of the hills. But figuratively speaking, in those last days, what's going to happen is this. There are nations and there are races of people who do not, who worship other gods, and they're going to come and they're going to flow and they're going to say, this God is the true and living God. And, and this picture continues. It says, and, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it's almost like in this picture you have this like zeroing in on these people who are streaming into this mountain and you overhear their conversation. And they're saying, I want to learn the ways of this God. I want this God's laws to become the very things that are written in the very fabric of my heart. I want this God to transform my life from the inside out. I want it to change everything. And then perhaps one of the most compelling visions of this future is verse 4. It says that, speaking about God, that he shall judge between the nations and just shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, <laughs> that is incredible. Do you, do you hear what's happening there? It's saying there's no more war. That instead of like, instead of like weapons like swords, they're going to be worked into instruments of agriculture to cultivate because there's not going to be a need for any of those weapons anymore. This is the vision of where God says all things are headed. This is his promise. This is the future. This is what is being put before Isaiah and those people of that day. And if you'd have been in that day, um, you would have thought Isaiah, I mean, let's just put it honestly, like might be smoking something. Because here's the deal, what's going on is none of the events of that day ever even look to even come close to this. There is no evidence suggesting that this would ever take place. Um, in fact, it would only be a, a decade or two later in which actually other nations would come in and actually kick God's people out. This vision looked like a pipe dream. This is never going to go down. Now, when, when they heard this vision... One of the questions was this, is how is this going to happen? Like, how is this, if this is where all things are headed, how is this going to be brought about? And I need to bring in a little bit more of the context, a little bit more of the stream of what's happening as this book is being written. And it was simply this. It was a time of kings. And, and you could, if you would, you know, this afternoon, the Packers aren't on your board. You know, you can go to like First and Second Kings in the Bible, and you can read about this time where, in essence, God, would, God put a king over his people, and as the king went, so went the nation. In other words, if, if the king was really faithful to the covenant and with God, then the nation would do well, and if not, then the nation would flounder. And honestly, it's pretty much, for the most part, it's, it's, it's not a pretty picture. But here's what happens. In the middle of it, Kind of like the golden era was King David. And in the middle of it, God comes to David. He makes a covenant with David and says, here's the deal. From your descendants, there's going to be a king that's coming. 
And this king, his kingdom will never end. And check this. Isaiah, just a few chapters later in chapter 9, says this. There's, there's someone that's coming. There's a descendant of David that's going to be born. And his name, his title is going to be the Prince of Peace. And that means this. That means this vision, he's going to be so skilled, he's going to be so wise, so good, so powerful enough, he's going to be able to bring about this vision. And what I want you to understand is, this is, to put this all together, Isaiah and his contemporaries, when they look to these promises of peace, and they consider their longings for peace, in the midst of all the stuff that was flying, okay, Check this. Their hopes were on this Prince of Peace. And this is, this is straight up. This is how our longings for peace and God's promise of peace converge in the season because guess what? Christmas is about this king. Like Christmas is about this long-awaited king who would usher in this day. That's what Christmas is about. You want peace? This is, this is the one who's to bring it. And here's like the really abbreviated version of this king's life, okay? So he lives 33, approximately 33 years. He dies on a Roman cross. Eyewitness accounts say he rose from the dead. Scriptures testify that he ascended into heaven, that he's actually now ruling and reign that he's going to come again to judge both the living and the dead and to make all things right. Now, that was, that was you know, a lot to take in, I'm sure, in those moments, but what I want you to understand here is that you're longing for peace. And this whole season... This future that we're looking at, it all comes rushing forward to that first Christmas, to this long-awaited king who is the prince of peace. Now, I want to spend our final moments, and I want to kind of dial it back a little bit and kind of address, it's kind of a, I'll put it this way, this is kind of like leftovers, you know, like there's a lot of things out there, and I, 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 I hope this will... I don't know, it tastes pretty good. I think leftovers are good, right? But I want to address a, a couple different folks here, perhaps where you might be. And the first I want to address is perhaps if you're here and you're curious and you're skeptical of the Christian faith. Because, I mean, let's be honest, when you think about the events in the world today, oftentimes what happens is you think about peace in the world and we'd say, well, actually, isn't like religion kind of the problem? You know? I mean, when you think about the last couple weeks, isn't that kind of at the center of a lot of the violence and vengeance that happens today? You, you might think if, 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 to, if, if peace really had a chance in this world, then perhaps, and, and this is what most people, I would say in Madison in the West, think, that we should just be skeptical about religion and faith in general. If we were just skeptical, if we didn't hold it all that tightly, then wouldn't the world be a better place? Um, there's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, and he's a Croatian theologian, and his book, 
He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, and it was actually grew out of some lectures he did. So he grew up, like I said, in Croatia, and in the 90s, um, it was about a 10-year war in Yugoslavia that was just, I mean, in essence, they're just ethnic cleansing. And he did this, um, this lecture, and this book came out of it, which he's trying to explain from a theological framework, basically, how nonviolence can actually take place in this world. And the, the quote's up here, but, but here's what he says. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. That's a mouthful, right? Like That's like cranberry sauce right there. That's like, I mean, strong, okay? But here, here's, here's what Wolf's getting at here. He, he's saying this. Um, the idea that being skeptical about God producing peace has actually been born out of a naive view by people who have not actually suffered violence. He, here's the deal. He's saying, I've, I've been in situations where I've seen brothers and sisters have their throats slit and the skeptical view of God, what do you do in, re- in response to that? How do you stop the cycle? If you're skeptical about what God might do, that actually he'll take care of it, then you'll take it in your own hand. He's saying that the core belief is essential to responding nonviolently. You know, this past June, a white gunman went into the Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and opened up and killed nine African Americans. And the question was, how will these people respond? In the midst of violence, will they take up arms? They met four days later, on a Sunday, in that church, and the message was, in essence, reconciliation. There were relatives of those that had been slain that actually expressed forgiveness toward the shooter. John Goldberg tweeted the following, he said, not being a Christian, I can only marvel at the courage of the victim's relatives who forgave the shooter. If I could ever manage such a thing, it would probably take me decades. It took them little more than a day, end quote. Let, let me just suggest to you this, that um, moments like that, like spring is coming, and there are going to be moments in which you know the trees, and they just begin to bud. And new life is just beginning to begin again. That's what that moment is. Th- those are the budding moments of this king who has come, this prince of peace, so that those who come under his good rule and reign, what do they do in response? They don't step into the cycle of vengeance. They actually stop. And they say, we're going to trust the God who's made everything, is going to take care of everything. 
I'm going to respond in peace. Um, one of the things that's clear in Isaiah 2 is there is this, there's this picture of the nation streaming to this God, to Israel's God. And Jesus, um, he, he kind of does a little bit of a remix on this, I would say. Uh, in John 12, uh, Jesus says this, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Notice how Isaiah 2 talks about the mountain of the Lord being risen above the hills. It's exalted. Jesus does a remix. He says, guess what? When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And in case you're wondering, well, what is that? What does it mean when Jesus is lifted up? John does a commentary. He says, he, he says this. He said this. Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, it's the cross. Do you want to know what makes the nations stream to Israel's God and says this, that this is the true and living God? Jesus says, guess what? Look to the cross. You see, here's the deal. When we talk about peace and we think about hostility and war in the world, see, the, the biblical narrative would say the hostility and the angst and the anger and all that we see, like those are symptoms of a greater problem. There is actually war and hostility because we are at odds with God himself. But that God, what does he do? He comes in Jesus and he dies for us, suffers on the cross for our sins so that we might have peace with God. That before peace can happen in this world, it has to begin with God. That before you can ever know how to relate to your neighbor or your friends, you've got to understand how God relates to you. And that is that he lays himself out. And don't you understand that, that that's why when we talk about this gospel, it's the gospel of peace because guess what? It has gone to the nations and it is going to the nations. And there are people from every tribe and tongue who guess what? Are putting their faith in this king who is saying this is the true and living God. And that's the invitation on one level for you this morning. If you're not a Christian, it's to say you, you need peace with God. And Christmas is about this king who has come. He's come to die for you. To take, honestly, the, what Casey was talking about earlier, the, the sin and all the power and all the effects that cleanse you from the inside out. Um, lastly, let me just speak to those of you who follow Jesus because um, what are the implications if this is the future? Um, let me put it this way. Uh, <laughs> this is true. Think about this for a moment. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. Let me say it again. The way you live today is completely controlled about what you live about about what you believe about your future. Point blank, my kids. I'll tell you a story about them. So each week we do, uh, they help clean the house. They have chores. And uh, one of the things that we do to help that move along is we tell them, 
on the back side of when you get all these things done, you get to play 15 minutes, 15 minutes on the iPad, video games. Can I tell you what? Um, that changes, like, like, that's a game changer for them, okay? Like, chores that would normally be, like, sluggish and complaining, all of a sudden, like, that carrot, it changes everything. It does. Um, but you might say, well, that's kids. That's not really us. We're, we're much more sophisticated. How about this, Epic employees? Let's talk for a moment. Um, do you know that most Epic employees, if they, if they do leave the company, it's within the first one or two years of their employment? And do you know why that is? Because once you hit about year three, guess what's coming? Year five, which is a sabbatical, which is a paid month, in which Epic says you can go anywhere and you can hang out with your friends and we'll, we'll pay it off, right? Well, what, what's happening there? Well, if you make it to year three, what are you doing? Guess what? I can endure another two years because that month's coming. Okay? What you believe about your future controls how you live today. And let me just suggest this, that um, in verse 5, this was supposed to be the response of the people when they heard this vision. It says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, it was a call to live faithfully with God. Not not perfectly, but to live in a deep, abiding, obedient relationship with this God. And here's the deal. It was to be done right where they were, right in the midst of the circumstances of their lives. Not because things were all hunky-dory. Actually, they were pretty difficult, but because this is where all things are headed. Therefore, you walk faithfully with God right where you are. And let me just give you one, one implication, okay? Because this is, I, I think, I think this is so important, and it's really this I would suggest, that if Jesus is your Prince of Peace, if He is the Prince of Peace, He's come to make peace between you and God, and He's come at the end of all time to actually have everybody lay down their weapons and actually love one another, and that's what he's actually in the process of doing now, then that should inform our relationships with others. And I'll just put it straight up. This Christmas, like this season, like if, if you got issues, if you got discord, if you got hostility, like with people in this room, or if you got hostility across the table, like if God has done this in Jesus and has come and laid his life down to have you have peace with God, then that means the onus is on us to be peacemakers with those around us. What I'm trying to suggest is this, is is just straight up, like what God has done for you, guess what, by his spirit, he wants to do through you. So here's the deal. Just, Just think about it for a moment. Are there people that you need to go to and get right with? Are there people that have things against you, perhaps, that you need to go to and get right. See, this is, the, I mean, this is the point, guys. Like, the church is supposed to be the beta launch of the future in the present, okay? This is supposed to be the place where actually people show up and they go, actually, these people like each other. They love each other. They're not perfect, and they perhaps sometimes have squaffles and whatever else that means, right? But it means this, that you, 
work it out. Because the Prince of Peace has come. Let's pray. Father, we um, give you thanks this morning for this vision, this hope. Um, just pray this morning that however our longings, um, wherever they're at, <laughs> that we would see that in your Son, they all come rushing forward. And we give you thanks for the season. Amen.